0: still very sadly many companies don't either they think they're they're developing you or they think the manager is giving you what you need uh, but there's so many poor managers out there and so even if there is that structure you know in place for for support sometimes it doesn't trickle down to the individual that needs it
1: before we get into today's episode we have a word from our sponsor mindset shift have you ever told yourself i don't think i can do this They will never go for it. I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. help unlock their growth. Through actionable coaching, workshops, leadership development programs, or speaking engagements, we create foundational people over profit environments, the kinds where productivity and innovation soar, culture, inclusion, and equity sit at the heart of operations. Are you ready to step out the box and take your organization to the next level? Contact us today at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Enjoy today's episode. Today I have the pleasure of talking to a communication specialist. She is an award-winning international speaker. She's the author of um, two books. Charlotte Kay is what I would call the... empathy whisperer should i say want to use that you know she talks a lot about empathy in the workplace around inclusive leadership around dni and she has a vast array of um, experiences that we're going to delve into today thank you very much for agreeing to come on the podcast today
0: thank you so much it's great to be here very excited
1: researching you has been really really fascinating when you talk about eclectic, <laughs> you really um, you really capture that. And I guess for me, I wanted actually to go go a bit back to your Oxford and Cambridge days. I'm going way back because <laughs> I'm always very curious as to how people end up where they end up, and that's why I was like to go back to like the original origin story of. What was it like uh, being at Cambridge, story? I think natural sciences you did there, and obviously you went to Oxford as well, did a postgrad. What was that environment like for you? And at that point in time, were you thinking what you're doing now is what you're going to be doing?
0: You know what? Back in those days, I did have, I had no idea what I'd end up doing. I was just a bit of a, you know, like a sheep, <laughs> basically. People would say, oh, why don't you do this? Oh, okay. I had like a very uh, authoritative parent, Nigerian Parents, like, this is what you're going to do, this is how it's going to turn out. And I knew that what they were painting wasn't quite what I wanted, but I didn't really know what else was out there. Ironically, with that, going to Oxford and Cambridge was my idea, it wasn't theirs. They didn't necessarily want that. Yeah. And actually, this is a funny one, but when I got my um, results to go to Cambridge on the day I got my A levels, I went to my dad and said, I've got my results, you know, can't wait to go. And he said, No, no tell them you're not coming i've heard that there's a 100 percent employment rate in pharmacology so go to bath and do pharmacology like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so yes yeah, so it was interesting because going off there wasn't this like oh yes she's gone you know let's all applaud her it was more me having to kind of wrestle with my my dad no, and then that's... say that i'm going
1: that's different, though, because normally, especially with Nigerian parents, it's not like, "Oh, wow, Oxford and Cambridge—that's that's the one." And for them, it's the accolades. So I'm, I'm surprised; it's a very, very different approach.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was very different, and um, you know, I had a good, good enough time when I was there. But I mean, it was a—it's not the best beginning to have to fight with your folks to to mm. go somewhere that a lot of people would be very happy to to have on their CV, you know. Mm.
1: I find being in that in that space at uh, the very great institutions, but they're very different institutions, um, especially for uh, for Black people, when there's not a lot of us there as well. So, how was your what was your experience like?
0: Yeah, uh, there weren't many of us. I mean, luckily in my college, I think there was one girl ahead of me, and then there was one person that came was one out of like three or four hundred that was the year after. But I remember because I was so shy and timid in those days, and I remember walking down the street once and. Um, there were these two two guys two dreads that were coming towards me and I remember thinking should I smile should I look?" <laughs> <I'm, laughs> my eyes were probably darting like <laughs> and then as I passed them they just collapsed in laughter I could hear them guffawing as I walked down the street <laughs> so i so like what do I do what do I do <laughs> but yeah, you didn't see a lot of people of colour, a lot of black people, definitely in those days. But I think it's a lot better now mm. and people are better organised as well. So we did have like Black Caucus where some people got together. But I wasn't particularly politicised, um, wasn't particularly uh, well informed in those days. So I just remember being intimidated by everything, <laughs> basically. <laughs> being honest.
1: It's hard to imagine, though, you know, when you look at what you do now, obviously... You'll you'll speak, you go on stage a lot, and that's probably one of the hardest things for people to do. And you talk about you being intimidated and being shy. It's like, wow, it's it's amazing what can happen over a a period of time. And I'm curious to see what, what was that changed for you, actually.
0: Yeah, it took a while. I mean, I think for me, a lot of it was about. I know you're. This is all about the workplace, but essentially, I took uh, because I didn't really know what I was doing, didn't have any sort of real plans. So a friend of mine said to me, "Oh, well, why don't you become a management consultant?" So I applied, got in, didn't even know really what the job, the job entailed, and so then I was in this. This is in the states actually. So I was working for this company in the US and. Just sort of just had that idea that if you keep your head down, keep quiet, just do do the best you can, everything will turn out brilliantly. And as we know, that is not always the case. And so I, my first brush with realizing that just uh, you know keeping quiet isn't always the, the best solution, was when basically I was in in meetings, I'd be a little bit quiet, a little you know a bit shy. And so then as a consultant, that you know that's not how you earn your money, right? So, I remember that I had this white uh, young white guy who was my boss uh, my line manager, and I don't know what it was, but clearly he was so afraid to give me feedback that the first I knew that I wasn't doing well was I was called to the managing director of the entire company. I was called to his office, and then I was told I was being put on probation, and so that was a pivotal pivotal moment for me in realizing that this idea of you know just keep your head down, get all the things. It will all work out okay. (laughs) Uh, No, (laughs) not at all. And I think I then realised as well. I sort of had I turned that one around. It was fine in the end, but had a similar experience working for a company in the UK. And then I ended up being completely demoralised by the corporate world and feeling that even though you you know you've got your best intentions, you're working hard, you're doing the best you can, support does not come automatically, and some people receive more support than others. And kind of recognising that you, so you need to have some skills about you, whether it's asking for what you want, creating some strategic relationships, whatever it was. And those are things I wasn't doing. So I ended up sort of crashing out of the corporate world <laughs> for a number of years, doing a lot of work on myself, training to be a coach, getting a lot of coaching. And for me, the foundation of confidence and everything is really authenticity and knowing who you are. Just the classic things like knowing what your values are in life knowing, you know, your drivers, all of that. And then from there, you can have that confidence in, in, in at least I know who I am. At least I'm not afraid of revealing who I am. And then everything else on top of that is a building block to take you to where you want to go.
1: One thing that you mentioned there around not getting the support at work. Do you think that it's something that you need to ask for or should it be given, especially if you're young and new in your career? What's your opinion on that?
0: I believe it should be given and I think in those days I didn't I I was just there just floundering so I I think I I felt that any anything I got was something I should be incredibly grateful for but I think now with the benefit of hindsight and talking to my clients and 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 so on and telling my story there's often quite a lot of shock that someone was allowed to get to that that position without any feedback I mean in this this another role at the role i Talking London, I ended up being fired after six months. I was on probation. The industry wasn't doing well. I was managing a team, and my direct manager was one of the uh, sort of on the board of the company, it was a small company, and literally didn't get any feedback for six months. right <laughs> And then day of performance review, this is your last day. <laughs> so- what? Steffi, yes <laughs> yes and it's uh it, now you know I laugh it's shocking but when you're in it you're just just scratching you know trying to survive just you know not really sure what's going on so yeah I do believe that f- feedback it, it's their a company if the company's gonna hire you they need to develop you that's their job to develop you but s- s- still very sadly many companies don't, either they think they're, they're developing you or they think the manager is giving you what you need, uh, but there's so many poor managers out there. And so even if there is that structure, you know, in place for for support, sometimes it doesn't trickle down to the individual that needs it. So, yeah, I think that's an, a, a good question. And I think asking for what you want is a skill. I did, I did a piece of work for a, a big media, like a media giant, if you like. And what they did is they brought all their, sort of black um, and minority workers together for a summit and they gave them various workshops and things at that summit and one of them was what you know delivered on asking for what you want even within that sort of structure I think they recognize that sometimes it doesn't it doesn't filter down Mm -hmm. that somebody gets that management they don't get that support they don't get that help.
1: Yeah I completely agree with that I mean it's It should be given because you need to be in places, but even if it's not, it's one of my fundamental like rules I live by is you don't ask, you don't get. And it's that way I know that I've I've done everything I can from my perspective, and then whatever happens is gonna happen. But like you said, it's not always easy, especially when you're just starting out and you're just growing, you're just developing. You don't you don't know that. Can I really ask? Can I really say that? So it's not that straightforward. But one thing that I said when I was researching you is even what you just shared right now from going against your parents wishes and going to Oxford and then going to Cambridge you moved to the States so even in those moves that you're making even though you're talking about there was no there's lack of confidence and you just had your head down there's still something about you that was very much I'm moving forward and I'm taking steps and I'm actually doing something because the next thing you moved to was you went into jazz That's performance. That's that's not even you you can't hide. So I was was like, okay, I can see things starting to slowly unfold. What was what was that like?
0: Mm. That's interesting. Again, yeah, let's go back to the Nigerian parents and tell them (laughs) they did not even know I was a former. What did you think you were doing? Well, I'd always do like a bit, because I'm a trained teacher as well. So sometimes I do a bit of supply teaching just to kind of make ends meet because it's not always easy as a musician. So they're oh, how are you? Oh, yeah, I'm good. What's how you do? Oh, uh, teaching. <laughs> 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 so there was truth in it. There was truth in it. It wasn't the whole truth, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it. it I guess it's true. It, although I I was timid, afraid, all these things. I think there was just a pilot light inside, mm. um, and there was like something that was just directing me. And I just I, I think I had this this notion that if I felt something strongly enough, I should pursue it, whether I was afraid, whatever was going on. Um, and so yeah, so music was calling me, and so then I ended up working as a professional singer for uh, yeah for probably about a decade or more. And uh, yeah, it's really astute of you to kind of see that, you know, and just uh, something's driving her. <laughs> Something. <laughs> Whether perversity or, you know, I, I don't know. But but yeah, I mean, and it was, that that was really the the, the foundation of, of my, I guess my confidence to be a speaker, because as you say, you cannot hide, uh, especially as a lead singer, you know, there's no you can go. And while being in the limelight wasn't my, that wasn't the goal for me, it was really about self-expression. These people here at this event have come here to have a good time. What can I do to to give them that good time, whether it's in the way I interpret the music or the song selection or whatever? So it was really about being in service. But it, for me, it wasn't that. It was always just about, did people have a good time? Did I give them the right thing that they wanted in this moment? And that's where my satisfaction would come from, from gigs, from speaking as well.
1: Do you still sing at all or are you completely just, that's the chapter that's closed in your life now?
0: It's, it's kind of closed, COVID sort of that really. Because uh, I, I was doing a little bit of singing while I was building up my speaking and then COVID sort of ended the this, this singing. And it, to be honest, I'm quite grateful because it forced me to really go all in on the thing that I love doing which is speaking so every now and again I get asked to do things and I'm weighing up maybe doing one night a month you know having my own little residency somewhere Mm. but yeah I've kind of left it behind now.
1: I need to ask what favourite artist?
0: Gosh wow you know what I, I love a bit of Stevie Wonder from that sort of Motown era and Diane Reeves I think she's a really great singer there's a lot of great music out there and it's really hard because there's so much and it's like where do you get the time to absorb everything you don't so i do play a lot of retro stuff because at least i know yeah i was i was there in the day when... <laughs> 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 how about yourself Sophie? have you got a favorite artist
1: Ooh, ah man a question around on me um
0: <laughs> on the spot
1: <laughs> <laughs> i actually don't have a favorite because different artists or groups represent different things for me. Just for example, when I think about um, music, I, I go back to like, Boyz to Men was an era for me, like, growing up. And then, and I moved forward and like, Jagged Edge was another era for me because even like, when I got married, we we got married to one of the Jagged Edge songs. I was like, <laughs> walking down, walking down and out. And then you got different songs which mean, mean different things to us and our children. Um... It will be hard. I think probably yeah. toss up between like this is a bit weird mix between Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Mary J Blige. Are probably like my main three artists that I really, that I really really like. Who will have different things for me different times.
0: Mm, interesting. It's a good answer as well because it's hard, isn't it, to mm. say just one one person.
1: Yeah, I can never just hold onto hold onto one. I love like music has been. It's got me through some dark times, <laughs> especially when you're younger. You just put some music on and you just switch off. Like, you just go into that introspection mode. So, yeah, I love my music as well. And now you move then into a lot of the work that you do right now about empathy in particular. And what is your definition of, of empathy?
0: Yeah, um, you know what? I'm, there's so many definitions out there. And one that I particularly like is the one that Michelle Obama used which is that it's recognition that other people's experiences have value. And I think that is key to everything because there are so many people now that feel that what they, their experience, their view, that's the most important one. That's the only one anyone should listen to. And I think just recognizing that everybody has got their, their take on things Mm -hmm. and they could come from a different place, completely different place than yours, but it's still valuable that's the one that i gravitate towards because you get people you know the the typical definition is the the ability to understand the feelings of somebody else and then you can sort of take it further and look at it in terms of compassion so actually doing something about it rather than just understanding if you take a psychopath right a psychopath is very skilled at understanding the feelings of somebody else but they're using it to do them harm Mm. so i think it's not enough just to say I'm empathetic or even to say, well, I'm not empathetic. I'm not very empathetic because there's still more that you can do to go beyond that, to actually take some action that will make a change. Even if it's asking somebody a few questions that help them to feel heard or there's so many things you can do to be empathetic. So I think it's, we need to move beyond this. It's just understanding what somebody else feels because it, okay, I understand, but I'm just sitting here doing nothing. How useful is that?
1: Understanding is great, but then it's the, it's the action that you're talking about you need to take, which is that next step that moves you to compassionate, empathy. How do you get over the, I'm going to call it the fears that people can have to go to that next step? Because that's you then thinking, okay, I, I, I understand that person. But if I'm going to be compassionate towards that person, are they going to re- be open to that? Are they going to want to hear what I have to say? Are they going to even use it against me? There's so many different fears that can tend to come up when you're thinking about going to that next step. How do you navigate and effectively get over yourself and, and take that, that leap?
0: In my keynotes, I typically talk about curiosity as the first step. So actually being interested and giving a damn about what's going on around you. And then the next step is courage because you could be as curious as you like, but if you're not going to do anything with that curiosity, it's not particularly helpful to them or to you. Mm. So how do we pluck up the courage One thing to think about is that empathy doesn't mean you have to agree. And a lot of people say, "Well, how can I be empathetic when they've done this to me or when they've done that to me?" But it doesn't mean you're saying, "Hey, here, take take me on yours, you know, do what you want with me." Instead, it's just being able to take their perspective. And then what you do with that is really up to you. As we said, you know, you could be a a psychopath. You could be going into battle against somebody, and then you you figure out exactly where are they coming from, what are they going to do next. Obviously, we, we want to do good. We want to improve the lot of the people around us. But being empathetic in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that you've got to be this complete sucker who, you know, gets tossed around from side to side. And, is, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that. So I think you can still keep, keep yourself. You can still be who you are. I think the, the risk for some people is that if they listen to others, not the risk, the fear, is that if they listen to others, they may be changed. They may hear something that makes them change their point of view, change their behavior. And that's the fear because they, they're quite happy with who they are. And, you know, I don't need anyone to challenge me. I'm okay, like, like this right now. And then if you open up and you're listening and you hear something, it's like, oh, maybe I need to question myself. And a lot of people don't want to do that kind of introspective work, they just want to get on head down get the job done, go home, whatever it is. That's probably a fear for a lot of people that they might be changed or they might be. They might even see a critique in there of, of the way that they're doing things and they're not ready for that.
1: You're leaning into really good air, actually, because what you're leading to is actually when it comes to us taking that step, that fear is not necessarily about the other person, it's about us and it's about what could happen if we did that what could change inside of us and we are forced to be thinking about it. that means we know that there might be something wrong here or there might be something that we need to a different perspective we need to take but we don't want to do that and therefore fear plus ego Holds us back, <laughs> and that's the, it's just a very it's a very dangerous combination. But it's the it's the reality of it, isn't it? Because you see a lot with, with with leaders where a decision's made, and then you you have people asking afterwards, how come no one actually stopped that person doing that? How did that actually get so far? And it's because that person had enough power, who wasn't challenged, wasn't stopped, and no one was questioning them because no one was, everyone was scared of what might, what, what might happen and what got kind of us So that's a very interesting way of looking at it, which i have not considered by it comes to empathy, to be honest.
0: Mm, interesting. Yeah. I mean, a few things that popped up for me when you were just saying what you, you did, first of all, this fear of the unknown. So mm. for example, I share in my TEDx as a kid, I was fostered and I think, you know, my parents, foster parents were amazing. I was fostered till I was 12, but then people are talking about their childhood and you want to join in. So you, have to preface with oh yeah you know when I was first, you see (laughs) because they're afraid right they're afraid that they're going to hear something that is disturbing or something that they have not experienced before they can't deal with and when I think about the way people entertain themselves with Netflix you know slasher movie Alien from outer space. Like we completely absorb ourselves <laughs> in situations where we don't know what's gonna happen. There's all these unknowns around us, right? And yet a colleague we have some sort of relationship with says they've had something slightly different happen to them and we're terrified. So I think part of it is this idea of knowing just what to say, knowing mm. you don't you have to become a therapist or you know, just just whether it's I'm sorry that happened or oh, how was that for you? Just a simple how was that for you? And you just hear, okay, oh, it was great. Or, oh, it was a tough time. That, that's enough for most people to feel hurt. But we, a lot of us don't even have the, we don't, either don't have the skills or the inclination to go there. So that's the first thing I was sort of thinking when, with what you said. And the second thing is that actually if studies have been done that show that as you become more powerful, you actually lose the ability to mirror other people. Mm. And that's why they say power corrupts or... You know, as people rise the ladder, up the ladder, they become less and less empathetic. And it's actually a thing. It's not, it, it, it does happen and it's measurable. So for senior leaders, they really do need to find ways to stay in touch for the good of the company, if not for the, you know, for the, just for, for business reasons, even, uh, aside, think of the, aside with the other stuff. But they need to find ways to stay in touch, to keep that empathy muscle um, growing rather than withering as they um you know
1: progress up the, the company ladder. Yeah, that's so true. That's like when you look into like psychological safety, one of the things to talk about is, is empathy. Because if you have an environment where people feel comfortable enough to be able to raise certain uh, things or make statements or make comments or share, then it's okay because there's empathy in that environment. So you feel safe enough. If there is no empathy at all, then you're not you don't have psychological safety. Therefore no one's gonna speak up. And that's how those kind of Two components kind of go hand in hand to flow through to your culture your organization, but there are, I guess, there are other benefits of for a leader to have empathy, and which I'm interested to find out what your thoughts were on that.
0: Oh, mm. well, I think there are so many benefits, and there's just across the, the the board. So, to my mind, empathy is the listening, hearing, and then that compassionate side is the acting, right? Mm-hmm. So there's an HR consultant, Josh Burson, who's in California. He did a study on 850 companies, different industries, different sizes. And he found that, you know, for, for all the interest right now in DEI and all these initiatives that are going on and interventions, he found that the most important and effective one was the simple act of listening, hearing what people are saying and actually doing something about it. And that's more powerful than so much. And that has an impact on customer satisfaction, retention, engagement, belonging, all of those metrics that, you know, people claim that they're trying to improve upon. And so so just that simple act of of the listening and doing, as I say, which sounds easy, but we've already discussed how it can be hard for for many. (laughs) But yeah, I think that's just that's the key, really. And I know that a lot of clients of mine and companies are doing these, call them like listening sessions or mm-hmm. proximity conversations where they're actually bringing some of their staff in and they're trying to have these, whether it's one-to-one or one-to-many sort of opportunities to really hear what people are going through. But I was talking to a head of DEI a few weeks ago and she was saying that a senior exec contacted her after one of these listening sessions and said, oh, there's a white guy. Oh, I shouldn't have been there. There's a, so and so Asian woman that should have been there instead. She she would have re- responded better to the stories. Why does I need to hear these sub-stories? Right. You know, it didn't really hit the mark in that particular situation, but interesting to keep trying with these these interventions.
1: Yeah, I've facilitated a number of those listening sessions and it's the feedback is always quite good where <laughs> some people get it, and it's exactly what you say that they run around. That's your colleague right next to you. This is what, this is their reality. And then you're like, that hits home for you and you want to do something about it. And for some, it's just like, I'm not listening to that. Or I don't care about that. We've all had different, hard, tough lives. Just move on with it. And it's, like I said, it's down to the individual. And it's not everyone you can change. And there are times when it takes other moments in their lives where they need to be empathetic, but you can't force it, which is as much as you want to, because there are times I'm better than <laughs> where you're like i wish i could just shake you but (laughs) unfortunately that's not how empathy works so (laughs) you cannot you cannot do that but something that you mentioned earlier on, when you talked about you were you were fostered and your colleagues at work were talking i was interested did anyone ever ask you about your experience and how did that make you feel they did
0: Typically, they would change a subject. I mean, every now and again, you might have someone saying, Oh, that's that's interesting. How was that? And they, you know, I wouldn't want to load off on them, you know, be like one or two sentences from my side. But quite often, you, literally, you see people's eyes like rolling in terror <laughs> in, their, in their head. And then they'd say, Oh, is that the time? Or, Oh, it's lunchtime. Or, Oh, you know, and, they, and they'd literally, you see them like struggling to find something to change a subject to. And my experience is quite a sort of benign low-key one so I you know I really feel for people who've been through something quite traumatic Mm -hmm. and there's a book great a great book by Catherine Manning I think it's called Empathy in the Workplace and she talks about how can you be empathetic when you're dealing with people who have been through trauma or when something traumatic actually happens in the workplace and then how do you how do you deal with that and she's American so there, there are more you know with sort of office shootings and things like that that happen you know at the very extreme end Mm -hmm. they're more likely to happen there than, than in the UK you know she has this really quite interesting framework for how to deal with that how to have these conversations and literally it starts with something like I'm sorry that that happened to you so the person feels heard they feel you know or it could be well how was that for you to ascertain whether or not it was a perceived as a good or bad event but just just that alone is would help so much you might be scared out of your mind like oh where is this going up uh, just I'm really sorry that happened or you know how did that feel for you and then after that if you feel like you want to steer the conversation away then that's fine but at least acknowledge which is I have this sort of three-step uh framework I guess for being empathetic and the first part of it is naming what that person has experienced so it might be something like in my situation oh so you were fostered as a kid." Right? That's it. You know, so they've named what's what's happening. And then I might say, yeah, blah, 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 this happens. So then the next step, the and it's called the NET framework, N-E-T. So the E is for empathize. And the empathy might be just, so how was that for you? Or how did it feel for you? And then you say something and say, oh, so you felt quite happy. People said, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then finally, the T, which is optional, is transform. Now, in some cases, there may be nothing... You can do because sometimes if someone's speaking about something that happened in the past, and I think this is often what people are afraid of. It's something, it's like a past trauma or a past event that they can't do anything about, so they just steer clear of it. So the transformation part is optional. There's not always something you can do. It might just be, oh, uh, that's that's really interesting. Thanks a lot for sharing that. You know, just acknowledging what the person shared with you, or it could be, oh, what's next for you? If there's something that's kind of ongoing, or it could be if you're a manager how can we work on this together or you know can I do something to support you that's the transform part but I mean those conversations those those little sentence starters are so easy they're not oh let me think back to you know when I did psychology at university and we learned about blah blah, blah. you know it's not any of that <laughs> it's not any of that it's just simple stuff to help somebody feel heard and acknowledged that's it
1: I love the framework. I think I love the simplicity of it. And it just goes to show that anyone can do it. And even that the acknowledging someone and leaning into what they're saying, even if nothing happens after that, the fact that they've been acknowledged, they feel seen, they feel heard, like you said, that in itself is so powerful. When we talk about creating work can you do in the DNI space or talking about belonging. It's that is I want to feel like I'm a part of this. I belong where where I am. And one of the great ways is to acknowledge what someone says, something not, oh, that's too uncomfortable for me. Therefore, we're going to change the subject. And just for then leading on to all the different areas that really starts to bring people together and foster that culture of inclusivity. So I really love how simple yet powerful I can see that framework playing. out. I'm going to think about examples back in when I was leading different organizations and that's what it was. It was, literally was just, one of the questions I used to ask like, my team when I first started early was, like, how can I help you grow as an individual? And they were like, ooh, what's, what's going on? <laughs> and it took them back by me asking that. But for me, I saw it as I needed to be able to get to know you. The work is secondary, and there'll always be great things that come out of that. But the primary thing that we need to do is get to know each other better. And that means me investing in you and, and vice versa and opening up. And it was that that saw that fundamental change. And like I said, it goes into me willing to step into that, whatever that might bring.
0: And that requires a, a sort of fearlessness from you, doesn't it, as a, as, a, as a leader, to go wherever that colleague or, you know, that team member is is going to take you with mm-hmm. that, in that conversation. And I think that's the, I call them brittle leaders who, you, you, we've all, we all know them, right? So you can just see that they're afraid, they keep everything on track, they cannot take feedback from anybody unless it's their own senior. And these are—I think there are a lot of people out there who are just—they're just afraid all the time, and that makes them brittle. They're not flexible, not malleable. Unfortunately, there are, there are many of them out there, and I think those are the people that really need to be assisted with—you know—the work that you do, uh, for example, Sophie, to help them limber up, you know, and, and be able to go where they need to go as leaders.
1: Speaking of um, leaders, you are an introvert but yet you are like i said a public speaker you work with organizations previous more singer and all the different accolades that you have behind you but a lot of people think i'm an introvert i can't do any of those things i'm an introvert i need to be a very good example of What you said at the start just shy timid head down that's what introvert is and you're obviously dispelling that and i just wanted to lean into a bit more about how do you Introverted people show up a lot more powerfully and courageously like you have been able to what would will be some tools or some tips that you can give them
0: mm. yeah, what a good question and I, th- I think there are still so many people out there that equate introversion with you, you, you can't be a good leader in an introvert or you can't be effective in the workplace and be an introvert or it's a handicap or it's it's just see it still perceived as a negative thing by many and I think that's a real shame. And um, I think as an introvert, I think the key is, first of all, to figure out who you are. So I think a lot of it's about the values, because in certain circumstances, you may not have that head down thing. You may come into your own or it might be a a real area of, of passion and strength for you. So I think the first thing is to figure out what it is that you love to do, who you are in different scenarios, and then decide what's which of those sort of scenarios or environments you want to be in which ones give you energy because it gives me energy when i'm doing public speaking i might need to relax afterwards or not do a great deal afterwards but i'd much rather do public speaking than coaching like for me coaching one-to-one is a drain like whoa whereas wow. if i yeah, yeah if i can switch on the light bulb or the fire or whatever for a hundred or a thousand people It's like, yeah, I can, this is, this is, oh, energy, great. They're writing stuff back in the chat. We're having fun. But what, if that's for one person, so I think everybody's got to kind of, you you try enough things and you'll start to understand what drives you, what energizes you. And because for introverts, energy conservation, energy management is a huge thing because we, not all of us, but tend to be drained by, overstimulation or too much interaction mm-hmm. you've got to pick and choose and just find what's right for you what lights your fire what doesn't and then give yourself more of the what lights your fire with enough breaks in between as well so that you can get your energy back up as needed so for me that's that's been the main thing just understanding and sometimes work will come in and they'll say oh we want you to do this can you do these uh, interviews with people can you do this can you do that and it sounds great and then you're like I've got to interview twenty-four people. What? No. So it's so like no. <laughs> Turn it down, right? Just understanding who you are, and, and then when you're when you're employed as opposed to self-employed, it's a bit harder to manage the tasks that you're being asked to deliver. But over time, you can start to steer your career in directions that energize you rather than drain you, or where the draining part is kind of minimal and there's mm-hmm. there's more of the energizing.
1: Are you good at saying no often?
0: Ah, uh, I'm getting better. And what I'll often say is let me think about it and then I'll come back and say, oh, actually I've had a think, and it's not quite the right thing. And I think you've, you've got to find a way because often we, we don't like, the, I don't like conflicts, I hate conflicts. Um, but so, yeah, so you give yourself like a little door to just hang behind for a little while and then come back. Oh, okay, so it's good about this now. <laughs> Why do you ask that question, it? because of
1: what you were talking around previously around you even been knowing, okay, for example, on a stage performing, that's great. Me to be 24 people, nah, I don't want to do that. That's a no. But then there are times when you can easily get caught up with the moment, like, oh my gosh, that person asked me to do such a thing. Yay! And then you don't, like you say, you don't stop and think. And you're like, mm, am I might really want to do that. Is that aligned to what I want to do? And I, I found that being able to actually be like, do what you do. I want to think about it or having that clarity of, if this aligned to me, my personality, where I want to go with my business, as opposed to getting lost in either the name or the stage or that kind of stuff. That is easily a lot more done. And I've spoken to people in the past where you're like, I wish I said no to that. I thought it would be this, but it turned out not to be. And when I took upon reflection was because it wasn't aligned to what I wanted to do. It wasn't aligned to my personality, but I got lost in the, I got lost in the source. That's what I like to say. And that's why I asked you that question was you do a number of different, various, a variety of different things. So I'm just curious as to how do you decide, I'm going to say yes to that. I'm going to say no to that and be at peace with your decision making.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that's such a good point. And, um, Sometimes you don't know until you've done a few things and then you start to realize, oh, my gosh, I would never do that again. right? And, and as you say, sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, if I, if I can just get through this, then I know I'll make great contact. So the next one will be even better. But what's the toll on you going to be to even get through to that next stage? Or what opportunities will you have to turn down because you're too exhausted or... It didn't turn out the way you wanted it to because you weren't really your heart wasn't fully in it. Mm. So it's it, it can be tough. It can be tough to turn things down, especially when, especially in this world, like and as a speaker, oh, just do this for us. Then you know you'll get exposure or you'll do, you hear that all the time, and you've got to say, well, will will the thing itself give me some joy, or what's the benefit of the thing itself, not just the thing after? That's where I'm trying to get to, to be because there's no guarantee. That, that thing after is even going to come to, come for you. So it, it's hard. It's hard to make decisions. But sometimes it just it's that feeling like, oh man, are you looking forward to this or are you thinking, oh boy, this project's going to be a nightmare? Right? <laughs> and listen to that feeling. Sit with it. Give yourself twenty four hours. Sit with the feeling, and then come back and say, yeah, okay, yes or no.
1: something i resist really they doing is the question i said to ask i used to ask my clients and i stay out asking myself do you have to practice what you breach when you want to make a decision if you took money out of the equation how does how do you feel about that and that changes a lot of answers <laughs> surprisingly <laughs> and i know sometimes that's coming from a position of can come from a position of privilege as well to be able to make that decision but it's just if i just took that out of the Is this really something going to energize me and fill me up? Or is it going to just drain me completely and for the next two weeks, I just need to recover? So being careful around that decision-making process. And actually, I think that flows in what you're talking around, around empathy. Because there are times when people need to say no to things. I need to have leaders who know their people and who can understand the rationale behind them saying no. As opposed to using it against them. Be like, oh, that person said no to that. They're, they're blacklisted, or actually, how dare you say no to that? And that's where you had that natural synergy coming through. The more I know you and know my people, I know my team, and I give them that space to be them, I can respect their decision making process as opposed to enforcing my will because I have power and authority over them in that workplace scenario as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And that relies on you being a, a, a decent human being, doesn't it? And a decent leader who doesn't manipulate or push people in directions they shouldn't be going in just because, as you say, you can and it's convenient to you. Mm. Uh, and I think, I'm, unfortunately, there are still many people out there who <laughs> who will do the pushing and, the, the, and the, the tugging and the manipulation because it serves them.
1: What is your definition of leadership?
0: Ah, oh, gosh, I don't know if I have a handy pocket one. I think it's it's about the ability to bring out the best in others and in sort of the ability to to empower others and inspire them so that you can get the thing that you need to get done done if that makes sense. Mm. So ideally, you don't want to push them and force them. you want to inspire them to to move in a common direction that's good for all of you.
1: I like that. Really, What's like yours.
0: What's yours, come on.
1: Ooh. <laughs> My definition of leadership is someone who goes and shows the way to those around them. You open up doors for those that sick and come through, you're willing to take the the risks and you're leading by example. That for me is is a leader. You're a visionary and you're heading You're leading people in one direction, but you're not just leading them right from the front. You're there by their side, you're there at their back. You're there navigating that whole space just to make sure that they can actually get through. And the more person, the more we have those kind of leaders, it makes a difference. I think for me, my definition comes from a lot from home than work. So it's how I want to lead in as a husband is how I want to lead as a father is how I want to be with, with my friendship group. And I kind of took that principle, and I just applied it to the workplace.
0: Mm, I love it. I really like that. Yeah, it's not—it's not, it's not a, a quick sort of three-word one, but it's—it's it's all embracing, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I like Unfortunately, I don't have the, the short, quick, snappy ones. Just yeah, I'll get there one day. But I'm like, that. Nah, doesn't, doesn't quite work for me.
0: What, what
1: are you thinking about? Empathy. How do you, do you ever relate it back to like the personal side of things and relationships and how that makes a difference at, at home as well?
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's important because I think the, the, the lines, especially with what's happened over the last 18 months, the, the sort of lines between home and work are so blurred now, aren't they, with mm-hmm. so many people working from home. And I also feel that when you're talking about empathy and you're relating it to, say, DEI, which some people are resistant to, if people can see that there's more benefits for them than just work- workplace related, I think sometimes they'll be keener to get involved. So, for example, sometimes people will bring me in at the beginning of a DEI process to talk about empathy. And it's almost like a sort of red carpet for what comes afterwards, because it hate to use words softens people up, but it kind of gets people ready for some of the more challenging aspects that, that will come later on. Not that empathy isn't challenging. So, so yeah, I definitely think it does help with relationships and I've had people learn that, for example, that NET framework or learn how to be empathic listeners and they'll come out of a keynote and they'll contact me on LinkedIn and say, oh, I just talked to my teenage son and we had the best conversation in years and I just listened and they spoke and Wow, you know and they really people who are perhaps leaders they often find and think they can use that same leadership power in the house as well with their kids or their family and it doesn't work right they're just a person at home so I think it, it what it does is it takes it back to that basic we're two human beings having an interaction it's not about I'm in charge of you or you're there to do what I say let's just have this interaction and I think that can work as well we're dealing with some of the family and friendship dynamics that we often get into and it just kind of takes us out of that for a bit so we're just interacting as people with respect for each other rather than I'm your mum you need to do this or you know I'm your whatever I'm your best friend this is how you should behave with me but it's, it's hard to get out of that you know it's hard to kind of step back and hover above it you know but I think it can be done.
1: Since you're someone who talks about empathy, do you ever get that when you're at home? You're like, inshallah, you're supposed to be person to like, that's
0: not empathetic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's so true. And I think especially, you know, we all have those challenging relationships. Like there's one or two, they're just like the falling aside or like you're trying to mm-hmm. deal with them. And then I sometimes think, yeah, so... So I'm supposed to be this this empathy specialist. <laughs> <laughs> what would I do as the empathy specialist, not a Shola, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's always hard. I mean, you must get it as a leadership expert, right? And then you you're, you've got family or your children, and you're wanting to come on. And then you think, oh, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you have to check yourself sometimes. that right, I need to approach it slightly differently. <laughs> It's not always easy, though, because we're all human. So we're all going to make mistakes and, and mess up from time to time.
0: Yes, it's so true. <laughs> What's next for you? What is next for me? More keynotes. I've been really lucky in that I've been able to expand my business. I have a lot of clients in the States. So I'd like to continue working on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think just going deeper with the empathy applying it to more situations creating more more ways for people to access it with ease or for more more opportunities for people to kind of get to a place where they can have those conversations without it being too much of a struggle to get there Uh, so so to be honest I'm really happy with I love what I do especially when I say no to the stuff that that I don't want to (laughs) yeah I love what I do I love the opportunity to help people with this work. I love the idea of sort of helping leaders as well uh, become more effective. So to be honest, more of the same. I'm not going to say world domination, <laughs> uh, etc. Just, Just more of the same.
1: Obviously, you, you do a lot of writing. You've written two books in the past. You do a lot of speaking and panels and different things like this. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you about the wonderful work that you do as well?
0: LinkedIn's probably the best place and yeah. I love Pete, if you if you've listened to this just reach out you know say that you listened uh, you know I love that interaction uh, despite the fact that I, I don't like one-to-one coaching I do like to, <laughs> I do like to connect with people so so please do and then my website is um com uh, so please do and look, look at me I'm talking to you normally i would say showka I'm doing my Nigeria <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes you'll find me there uh, but yeah reach out reach out I'd love to hear from you
1: so all those details will be in the in the show notes and I just want to say it's been I've really enjoyed this conversation and just laughing and actually it's empathy is such a massive topic an area that a lot of people in general personal and professional really need to lean into more we've seen the impacts of it over the last 18 months with with covid and how important it really is and that's why the work that you're you're doing is super super important and a lot of more people need to to tap into you and get that help because it's going to make such a massive difference to them on both personal and professional level
0: Thank you. Thanks. Opa. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. And uh, wishing you well with your own career and endeavours. Also, great work.
1: Thank you very much. This is Everyday Leadership and I'll see you next week.